Between 2005 and 2015, Donald Trump spent hundreds of millions of dollars. He spends more than $400 million in straight-out cash. Some money came from his late father's real estate business. Trump in 2004 sells his father's estate, and he makes $177 million in cash off that. Some came from private loans. He also gets more than $300 million in loans from Deutsche Bank. Some came from a loan to himself. And then finally, he ends up with this really strange loan on his books where he owes more than $50 million to himself. And some, well, we don't know exactly where it came from. Donald Trump's finances are shrouded in mystery and have been for decades. But of course, one big thing has changed. The real estate developer, who could keep the details of his private business dealings closely held, is now the president of the United States. And so, in his capacity serving the American people, his private business dealings have become a matter of public interest. This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. Today's episode takes a deep look into a recent Washington Post investigation into the Trump Organization, and specifically its 2005 to 2015 spending surge. That story was written by Post reporters David Farenthold. I'm Dave Farenthold, and I cover the Trump Organization. And Jonathan O'Connell. I'm Jonathan O'Connell. I cover the Trump Organization and commercial real estate. Last week, the New York Times published an in-depth investigation into Trump's finances. That investigation found that Trump received millions of dollars from his father's real estate empire and engaged in some unorthodox tax strategies. Meanwhile, here at The Post, Dave and Jonathan uncovered details specifically about Trump's unusual 2005 to 2015 spending spree. For these reporters, an investigation like this one starts with the big picture. Well, it it starts by realizing that the Trump Organization is a bunch of little tiny businesses, and all of them run differently. And to understand each one of them, often you have to go look for records on each one. So there are some parts of the Trump empire that are pretty readily understood through public records, and there are other parts that don't really have any public exposure. There's no way to send in a public records request to some government entity and figure out how they're doing. So our challenge has been trying to, when we find those parts of the Trump empire, trying to figure out, well, okay, if there's nobody in government who has statistics that'll show us if this business is doing better or worse, who might have those stats and how do we find them? Yeah, the thing that really sort of helped us here is lots of hotels are owned by one big company and they sort of own all their own data. In this case, these Trump hotels are owned by many different individuals, and they all get different amounts of data from the people who manage the hotel for the Trumps. And there are records of that data. Right. They get different amounts of information. But yeah, they get some information, and some of them were very happy to provide it to us. So whether it's documents like that or public records, how do you start combing through this material to understand it? That just managing the records of this has uh, been one of the biggest challenges for for us, I think, is we get so much information and or we get so much paperwork. And, and sometimes that paperwork is really valuable. Sometimes it's not. Just finding a way to track all of it, both keeping the paper where we can find it again, but making spreadsheets so we can make comparisons from year to year. That's one of the things that's been the hardest about covering Trump Org is because they provide so little information, the Trump organization, to the public. If we're trying to build our own repository of information about them, you know, how do I search that? How do I make sure that I can understand it when I look at it, look at it again in a year? 
And I imagine this isn't something we've done for other presidents necessarily because they haven't been businessmen who've owned these empires. No, I mean, no other real estate developers got elected president that I can remember. <laughs> so I mean, so it's, it's not just that he's a businessman and has continued to own a business while I mean, other presidents have not. It's that he owns a really, really complicated business, even by the standards of other businesses. I mean, very few other businesses that are a little bit into golf and a little bit into hotels. And they all own a weird club down in Palm Beach. Like, it's just an amalgamation of a bunch of different things, kind of just knit together by Trump's own interests. So there's not a lot of other businesses that are even like it. It's also really visible to the public compared to other businessmen. It's not like he owns a private equity fund like Mitt Romney did or ran a private equity fund. It's buildings that have his name on them and that are in cities where all of us have visited and golf courses where um, you can play golf. And some of them are very, you know, really open to the public. It's a brand that is very visible to Americans and was before he was in politics. So then as you guys are researching this and going through all these documents, when do you know that you have a finding that's worth writing about versus acknowledging a finding as part of a greater story? How do you make that <laughs> distinction? How do you stop? <laughs> I mean, we, we've definitely had stories that went really far down the line and then never got published because they just weren't up to snuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very late sometimes. Sometimes we'll think... You know, we found some data and it looks like a really big, good explanation of how the business is doing and then realize, oh, it's just a part of it or it doesn't really tell the whole picture. It doesn't tell enough for us to explain anything to readers. And then if you can't fill out the rest of the picture, then it doesn't help that much. On this story particularly, we started out calling uh, people who own – so Trump has a hotel in Central Park West in Manhattan. It's his first hotel. He sold off all the individual hotel rooms so they're owned by – People. I was going to say regular people, but they're actually quite rich people who own them. Uh, and Re- regular rich the people. The regular rich people. They're not Trumps. <laughs> and uh, so we didn't really know what we'd get when we reached out to them to say, you know, what have you heard about your hotel room? I thought maybe we'd get statistics from them saying, well, you know, my room has experienced this level of occupancy. I've made this much money off of it. We get that kind of that level of snapshot. And what it turned out to be, thankfully, was that the, the management of the hotel had been sharing statistics with them about the whole hotel. Here's how the whole, whole hotel is doing, comparing it year to year. And once we realized that data was available, um, then that was sort of a, a sign that say, okay, we've got a story here. We know what's happening at this big, you know, what Trump calls his flagship hotel. And then we sort of said, okay, well, can we replicate that at other ho- Trump hotels? Well, then let's talk specifically about this story that you guys just worked on. Let's just rewind a little bit in Trump world. Trump's dad, Fred, died in 1999. What happens then to his empire? Fred Trump's empire was the opposite of Donald's in a lot of ways. In one way, it was not very flashy. It was a bunch of sort of low-rise buildings in Brooklyn and Queens um, that had been built in the post-war era. Nothing. Most of them didn't have Trump's name on them. They were not big or flashy, but they, unlike Donald Trump's empire at times, they made a lot of money and they made money steadily. So while the son was kind of up and down, taking big risks, losing big, the father's empire kept on churning out money. Much of it from the federal government, I should say, so um, because this was low-income housing. So even after his father died in 1999, the family kept control of those low-rise buildings, which were still churning out money. And all of a sudden, in 2004, Donald Trump says, let's sell, convinces his siblings who also have a role in these, in these entities to sell. So he gets a, a really big payoff, $797 million. But that cuts off, as you said, it cuts off the life, the sort of steady pulse of money. He trades a steady supply of money for one big one-time payment. But after that, it's over. He doesn't have his father's empire to turn back to. So we started to say, okay, well, what replaced his father's money in Donald's financial calculus after that, after he loses that lifeline? Let's talk about that then. What did you find in Trump's spending history beginning in 2005 that seems unusual? 
Trump in 2004 sells his father's estate and he makes $177 million in cash off that. But he immediately turns around and spends a lot of that cash on things that he needed to spend it on right then. And then after that, he spends more than $400 million in straight out cash buying properties, 14 different properties between 2005 and 2015. He bought a lot of things with all of his own money. And he was sort of famously um, previously bragging about how he borrowed heavily and used other people's money and didn't have to put his own skin in the game. After that, he starts spending hundreds of millions of dollars on a lot of low-margin businesses like failing golf courses uh, with his own money. And it's an unusual thing for any company to do, to put all your own, your own um, cash at risk like that. Um, but he's doing it on some risky propositions and does it over and over and over again. And do we know where that money came from? The company says, Eric Trump says, that they've produced that money from their other businesses, that they have office buildings, particularly in New York, that produce enough money on an ongoing basis that they had the ability to and the wherewithal to make those investments all cash. I think there remains reason to do more reporting on that time period, despite that explanation. One thing that's interesting about this is that explanation. is It's not just that they're taking cash and buying properties. If they're taking cash and buying properties and then continuing to sink cash into those properties when those properties lose money. So the two of the biggest purchases on that list, the all-cash purchases, were Trump's golf courses in, in Scotland, Turnberry and Aberdeen. It wasn't like Trump bought them and then immediately started to make his investment back from the operations of the golf course. Since he's bought them both, neither one of them has made money. They've gone further and further in the red every year. He's the, his, He spent more than $200 million on the purchase and the renovation and the keeping up the losses of those companies and those golf courses, and they keep getting bigger and bigger. So it's not just a, m- a mystery about how he got the money. It's w- if you had all your that much money, why would you use it to buy something that just turns into a sinkhole for more cash? Why would Trump put all that money toward businesses that were then losing money? For Dave and Jonathan, that's just one of many unanswered questions. As we've learned, Donald Trump spent $400 million in cash. Yet that doesn't account for all of his spending during this 10-year period in question. He received more than $300 million in loans from the private banking arm of Deutsche Bank. For a real estate developer, a private bank is a particularly unusual source for a loan. A lot of real estate developers obviously take out big construction or development loans from Wall Street banks. That's how it works. It always happens that way. What is really unique about this is that, for one thing, Trump has been turned away by almost all the other Wall Street banks at this point. His failures in Atlantic City caused lots of banks to lose lots of money. He's kind of proud about that. Banks don't like that. They don't want to do business with people who are kind of proud that they they lost money with him. So Wall Street banks had turned away from him. His relationship with Deutsche changes. At the beginning, it's sort of typical relationship. They lent him money from their commercial bank to build properties, and they would make um, some fees on that and some interest on that. During the development of the Chicago building, the relationship changes, and a different part of the bank, the private bank, starts making a loan to Mr. Trump. What's unusual about that is a commercial bank is subject to all sorts of very specific underwriting. The bank wants to know that they're going to be paid back. And when they're financing construction, which can be very risky, they want to know lots of things about that. Who's going to be the contractor for this? How much are we paying you know, the workers for everything? What are the, what's the likelihood we'll be paid back? What will the rents we charge later on be? They're trying to figure out exactly why they should make this loan. 
The private bank does not have that level of underwriting, that level of scrutiny. And the private bank not only lends some money in Chicago, but starts lending him enormous amounts of money for other projects, especially the Doral course in Miami and the old post office hotel in D.C. And other people who have looked at those deals, uh, again, a, a golf course that was not doing well and development of a brand new, very expensive hotel in downtown Washington, look at those deals and sort of question the underwriting. Were those really smart deals for a bank to do? Will the bank really make that money back? Or did the bank even really do its own due diligence to determine ahead of time whether they would or not? Deutsche Bank has not explained the underwriting that they did on those deals or why they provided deals from their private bank instead of the typical way that they would give them, but they're incredibly unusual. This $300 million loan is one of two unusual loans the Post found from this 10-year period. The other unusual loan on Trump's books is a $50 million loan that Donald Trump owes to, well, Donald Trump. This is fascinating to me. How is this possible? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll tell you what we know about it. Trump lists on his personal financial disclosures, uh, which he has to file. He had to file as a candidate. He has to file as president. He lists a more than $50 million loan to something called Chicago or from something called Chicago Unit Acquisition LLC. So that LLC is listed in his list of creditors along with the Deutsche Bank loans and some other banks. Um, but Chicago Unit Acquisition is not a bank. It's, it's, uh, it's not really even a company. It's just uh, an LLC that is headquartered at Trump Tower and owned by Donald Trump himself. So it looks like Donald Trump owes more than $50 million to himself. And he pays himself apparently quite a high rate of interest. The question is, how did he get this? And there's a few clues in the disclosures and a few clues in what Trump has himself has said about this. The financial disclosures say that it's from 2012 and it relates to the Chicago Tower. Trump himself has said, I bought back a loan that I owed to somebody else. I owed money to some other group, a group of banks, and I bought it back from them. And so now I hold my own loan on the books. The question is, what loan is he talking about? We've looked at the two big loans that existed on the Trump Hotel and Tower in Chicago in 2012. And there are two loans that got closed out in 2012, but both appear to have been closed out because they were paid off, canceled, retired, done. They weren't sold to Donald Trump. They just died because he paid them off. So we don't really know what loan he's talking about. Now, the question is, why would you do such a thing? What would be the advantage in buying your own loan? One possible reason we've heard from a lot of people is, so Trump owed that year $130 million to a group of banks. He paid it off for $48 million. So the banks took in what they call a haircut, although this is like more than your hair, $82 million discount. Trump basically was forgiven of $82 million worth of debt when he was allowed to pay this off at a discount. The is IRS that standard practice. I mean, that happens. Trump at this point, uh, to rewind back a couple of years, and during the financial crisis, Trump had sued his own lenders trying to avoid paying them the money because he didn't have the money to pay back his loans. So there'd been a long legal fight, and the banks just decided, look, this is as much as we're going to get out of him. Let's just take it and be done with it. So the, the IRS, if, so if you are forgiven of $82 million of debt or any debt, the IRS treats that forgiven amount as income. So 80, you would be taxed on it, even though it's, you know, it's just debt that you're, you're, is being given up, you're taxed on it as income. And so in some cases, companies to avoid paying that cancellation of debt income will buy back, in, you know, they, when they pay off their creditors at a discount, they'll buy the loan back and they'll keep it on their books and say, well, no, no IRS, I don't owe any money because my debt hasn't been forgiven. Look, the, the loan still exists over here, you know, on my own books. And I, don't, I don't pay myself any interest. I don't collect the debt for myself, but the debt still exists. So it hasn't been forgiven yet. I don't owe you any tax on it. 
it's that's why a lot of companies do it, and it could be a motivation for what Trump's doing here. We just haven't figured out the mechanics, or what even what loan he actually would have bought. Yeah, and by the way, in a lot of cases, not illegal. Yes, right. So it's, it seems bizarre, and it, maybe it is bizarre, but in, all, in law, a lot of cases, not illegal. And based on your reporting, there's no wrongdoing that you can see right now. No, not at all. But we don't know this remaining $50 million, what loan Trump paid off. Exactly. To acquire it. Okay. So just in all, during all, during this period, 2005 to 2015, The Apprentice became a hit. What year did that start? 2004. So how did that contribute to his wealth and his brand and his merchandising and his income? Pretty significantly. So he started getting the money from the from the apprentice, his payments for the show. And uh, I think Yahoo Finance had some good internal data numbers from that show that said it was over $60 million he made over a period of a few years. He also became this sort of merchandising celebrity, which he exploited to the max. I mean, it, was, it started out with Donald Trump shirts and ties and you know, things that he, you might see him wearing on the show, but he quickly just would take any merchandising offer anybody gave him. So it, it, we ended up with uh, Trump-branded eyeglasses, although he doesn't wear glasses, Trump-branded vodka, even though he doesn't drink, Trump-branded coffee, even though he doesn't drink coffee, and Trump-branded urine tests. Uh, <laughs> so, so he made some money off of those merchandising. Most of those things have now, those merchandising contracts have now died. If his uh, universe of merchandising uh, partners is now dwindled to one Turkish furniture manufacturer. Um, but he, Remember that all those deals, he really doesn't have to put up any money. Somebody coming into him saying, I want to make a Trump board game. Can I pay you money to put your name on my board game? And Trump's like, sure. And as you said, do that over and over and over again. You rake in a bunch of money without spending any. And there were also, the, the, he, in sort of the bigger scale version of that was that he put his name on condo developments, hotels, some some of which went someplace, some of which did not, some of which never got built, but he still got paid for them. So he he made a lot of money off both, both The Apprentice itself and also on the fame that The Apprentice gave him. So when we think about, well, where did he get all the money to buy all this stuff in that period? Certainly he was he had found a new source of income from The Apprentice, but he also was spending, I think, on a scale beyond anything that seems possible that he got from The Apprentice. This story about his spending and where it all comes from, how does this fit into the larger narrative about Trump and his finances? I mean, it, amazingly to me, Donald Trump has been in business for 50 years or something now, and we're still trying to figure out what he's been doing. Obviously, the revelations from the Times about all the money that he received from his father is completely opposed to what he's been telling everyone for his entire career, which is that he received a small amount of money from his father that he had to pay back and that he made many multiples of that money. And uh, his fortune is something that he built himself. And the fact that that has all completely unraveled based on these um, documents and tax findings, I think just raises all sorts of other questions about what he's been telling us about his business that may or may not be true. Will he be held accountable for that in any way, given that he is now the president of the United States? Should he be? I mean, perhaps your reporting reveals that there's nothing there. Well, I'll tell you what I, I, I think is if I think he is facing already and will face more, much more sort of scrutiny and intrusion into the way his business worked. I think for him, if he wanted to preserve the secrecy around his business, the worst thing he could have done was run for president uh, because it's, it, it seems like he had avoided the IRS looking at his charity, the IRS looking into his businesses. He'd somehow skated by all these things his whole life and probably would have continued to if he hadn't run for president and put himself under that kind of microscope. 
you're already seeing the New York Attorney General and the New York State Taxation Authority and the New York City Taxation Authority looking into the Times' uh, story and seeing, you know, digging into the Trump, uh, Trump organization's finances. If the Democrats uh, take either House of Congress, I think you'll see much more of that kind of scrutiny. There's a couple of lawsuits going on now regarding Trump's in addition to the one about Trump's uh, foundation, there's two foundation two there's two lawsuits now looking at uh, the emoluments clause, whether Trump is violating the Constitution by doing business with foreign governments. If those lawsuits proceed, then th- those cases will delve into the fun- functioning of the Trump Organization. So this whole sort of hermetic seal around his business is already breaking down and probably will be uh, be broken down a lot more. So even if there is absolutely no illegal action on the part of Donald Trump and he has just sort of engaged in what might be normal behavior for a real estate businessman, should we have a different standard then for the president? Should these things that don't necessarily meet a legal burden, you know, as a businessman, should they meet some sort of burden as president of the United States in terms of moral guidance or something along those lines? They matter more to me for that reason. And, you know, I don't, I don't want to say that I think that there's a, there's a higher moral standard. But as a journalist, I think that I care a lot about what his what's, you know, what's underneath the hood of the Trump organization. And, and it's I guess maybe there's a moral argument to be made. He sets an example for the country in terms of paying your taxes, respecting the IRS, following the law. Uh, but what I want to know is who his creditors are. You know, who has leverage over Donald Trump? Who has leverage over him through the information they know? Who has leverage over him through the um, loans they've extended, the business relationships they have? I mean, if he's making decisions as president of the United States that affect all of us. We need to really understand who has levers of power over him. And so a lot of the digging into his finances, to me, that's the question we're really asking. Is there some other relationship that affects his conduct as president that we need to know, know about that we can't know about until we understand his finances a little more clearly? I think the, the question that um, I would ask myself or I think a lot of ours would ask themselves, regardless of who the president is, is whether that person has the country's interests at heart first. And I think that's the reason that covering his business is important because – He's revealed so little about his business and how he makes or loses money uh, that now that he's in the White House, I think it's very reasonable to wonder if he has the um, the country's interests first all the time. All right, guys. So last question for you. Where are you turning to look next? Uh, well, I'd say two areas that matter a lot to us. Um, we talked a lot about the cash purchases Trump made and and his explanation or Eric Trump's explanation is we just have like a river of cash. We're sitting on a mountain of cash. It's so easy for us to get cash. That's why we bought everything in cash. I want to do everything I can to understand their real cash holdings during that period to see if that explanation is plausible. You know, if they really produced enough money out of their golf course and hotel operations that they could just go buy golf courses at the drop of a hat. That's one thing. I also want to understand more about the Deutsche Bank private loans. You know, what, what, how did he get that relationship with Deutsche Bank? Was it common? I just, we don't know much about the context of those loans and we're trying to learn more. The only other thing I would say is that if there are areas in which the President Trump is using the government to enrich himself, I think that's a story that a lot more readers can understand than that he cheated on the sorts of taxes 25 years ago or 10 years ago. And if that's the case and no one knows it is or is not, I think that's a story that more people would probably understand um, than what we know so far. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Can He Do That? To read this full investigation, visit WashingtonPost.com. And 
If you like this podcast, as always, share it with some people you know and come back next week. Thanks. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the charming Carol Alderman with design help from Kat Rudell-Brooks, logo art from Loren Boglio, and theme music by Ted Muldoon. <laughs>